Hi, it's June Sarpong here. You're listening to the podcast version of Project Reset brought to you by Mission Winnow. For future episodes, either subscribe with your usual podcast provider or visit missionwinnow.com. In a few months, the world has rapidly changed. And we have an opportunity to use this moment to reimagine the world we live in forever. Powering transformation through bold thinking, big ideas, and brave action. This is Project Reset. Welcome to the final episode in this series of Project Reset, brought to you by Mission Winnow. Today's episode is titled World Up, and we're going to be recapping over some of the conversations we've been having over the past few episodes. The last months has taught us that we have no certainty over the future and little control over the events that determine the way that we live. Yeah, and, and throughout Project Reset, we focused on specific areas that affect us all, uh, questioning what might lie ahead uh, if we take this, this moment of adversity uh, and use it as an opportunity to make positive change. Uh, and this episode, as June says, our last episode, looks at the most difficult questions that have come up, uh, come up across the series uh, with a view to uh, shedding a, a brighter light on what is an uncertain future. Uh, I'm Rick Edwards. And I'm June Sarpong. And today joining us to discuss the very things that we've just mentioned is a fantastic panel. We have the venerable Tenzin Priyadarshi, the innovative thinker, philosopher and philanthropist and monk uh, from MIT. We have Tim Hereford, economist, writer, and broadcaster. We have Dr. Maggie Adarin Pocock, British scientist and broadcaster. And last but by no means least, Catherine Finney, American author and entrepreneur, joining us all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. So welcome to you all. How's everybody doing? Pretty good. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Looking over all the... Um, the discussions that we've had for the for the last nine episodes, um, pretty much every episode has made the uh, inevitability of a of a digital future clear. Uh, and mm. COVID nineteen seems to be accelerating uh, what's been dubbed the fourth um, industrial revolution. So, what we'd love to do in this part of our conversation is look at technology. Uh, can it be a catalyst for a better future? And really get your take, all of you, uh, on this area. So if I start with you, Maggie, uh, that would be wonderful. And then perhaps the rest of the panel can also join in too. So I, I think technology is uh, just showing us uh, the way forward. Uh, as we all say, we live in strange times, but uh, technology has enabled us to do so much more than we would have thought possible. Just five years ago, 10 years ago. And technology, I think, it comes in many different shapes and sizes. Um, as a space scientist, I'm seeing how technology is helping us understand our planet, how to better manage our planet. So in terms of technology, I'm very optimistic. I, I think technology is changing the world. But I, what I'm most interested in is that uh, technology people interaction, uh, how we can utilise technology to effectively change the world and hopefully for the better and that's the challenge technology can go either way indeed venerable tenzin from a mindfulness perspective could you give us your take on this i'm a, i'm an in generally largely i'm a big fan of technology um, uh, you know working at mit um, i have seen um, the promises 
as well as the perils of it. Uh, I am a bit uh, cautious about the techno-utopia phenomena that, uh, that a lot of uh, my compatriots uh, try to propose. Uh, I think the, the key thing is that the narrative that drives our design needs to be much more clear uh, in the sense, as, as we have been, been seeing with the advent, especially of social media, that uh, you know, the narrative is that it will bring the world together. But in reality, all it is doing is tearing the society apart. Mm. Uh, it has uh, minimized the level of trust. Uh, it has created very polarized conversations. And it is threatening our dear civic institutions, such as democracy and law enforcement. So in light of all those things, we need to start thinking about you know, what goes in the design phase of technology, uh, rather than thinking that it's all going to fix itself in the near future. Indeed. Catherine? I definitely agree. Um, I'm here because of technology. Um, my father was a factory worker, took a course in C++ in the early days, which is a foundational computing language, got an internship, got a job early at Microsoft and became a software engineer. Wow. I'm married to a software engineer. My brother's in tech. I mean, literally everyone in my family. My son is five. He's in tech. Everyone's <laughs> in tech. Um, my biggest concern is the who. Who gets to create technology? And that's mm. a particular problem that we've had here in the U.S. And so a lot of the technologies that we all use in social media are not created by a diverse group of people. Um, and not even just racial and gender diversity, class diversity, even geographic diversity. It's a small subset of people who are creating these technologies that we all use. And as a result, they're not really able to think of all the potential challenges and even the triumphs that these technologies can have. Not because they necessarily don't want to, it's because their life experiences are fairly limited. And so my question is, who gets to do it? And I think the future of technology as a positive force is really going to depend on opening up that who. Um, and once that happens, then I think technology's future is amazing. But if that doesn't happen, we're going to see more polarization. We're going to see more technologies misused and more separation amongst us all. I, th I think there's been a really interesting uh, thing in, in the UK that was uh, anticipated by, by various people, which is now that we're seeing uh, algorithms get used for uh, more and more um, elements of our, of our lives and, and big, big decisions, people in power are now using algorithms as a thing to blame if something goes wrong. Mm. And, and obviously you can have, you know, you can have situations where you've, you've fed in biased data and therefore the algorithm starts producing biased results. But also in, in the UK, we had this big Ferrari over exam results. And essentially uh, there, were, there was a, a kind of an angle from the government, which was, ah, well, this, this, this pesky algorithm uh, and just sort of said like it's just this evil entity that's just kind of appeared and then that's what's that's what's gone wrong and, and so they're trying to sort of you know pass the buck um, and I think that 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 really worries me as a, as a pattern because algorithms don't just come from nowhere um, they're, they're created by us um, and and I wonder what the I don't really know what the solution is it's such a convenient kind of boogeyman yeah. because people don't really understand algorithms yeah. um, and so you just kind of go it's 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 the algorithm's fault. Well, we, Tim? All, we all want to blame somebody else when something yeah. goes wrong I mean that seems uh, I'm sure we'll soon have an algorithm for blaming other algorithms that that'll <laughs> that, that's just coming. I was quite struck by the algo shambles here in the UK because my own daughter was caught up in it oh. and one of the uh, 
one of the interesting things was, yeah, sure, the government said, oh, it was just the algorithm. The algorithm ruined everyone's grades. But if we think about what actually happened, uh, back in March, the government said, look, I'm sorry, there's a pandemic. All the exams are going to be cancelled. But don't worry, because everyone will get, will get the, their, the fair grades. Um, and I think if people had stopped back then and said, what, how, what do you mean fair grades? How, how, can you have, how can you have fair grades for an exam that no, that's been cancelled, that no one's going to yeah, sit? That doesn't what take is, place. <laughs> yeah, what does it even mean to, to, to assign fair grades? And of course, that could mean very different things to different people. And we could have had that conversation in March about what would fair grades look like. Uh, or we might have said, actually, it's impossible. So what does um, progress to the next level of education, what does uh, opening up opportunity at, at university look like in a world where the exams that we use to assign university places have been cancelled? We could have had mm. those conversations. We didn't. Um, and I sort of understand why we didn't, because we were all a bit preoccupied with other things back in March. You know, there was the, you know, there was the this pandemic virus. on the way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but really, it, it is interesting that we got ourselves into a situation where somebody somebody said, oh, you know, we could get an algorithm to do it, and all the politicians and all the civil servants went, oh yeah, that sounds alright. Algorithm will probably sort it out. So we need a bit more literacy about wh what an algorithm is, what it does, yeah. and a lot more. Transparency. I think the, these these um, these algorithms have tremendous power potentially to get rid of bias, to make decisions more effectively, more transparently, yeah. in a fairer way. But not if we just shuffle it all off to one side and don't talk about it. We and know, not if we don't design them that way as well. I.e., we they have to be designed with that outcome in mind. They have to be otherwise designed with that outcome get, in mind. Absolutely. Otherwise, we get what we get. <laughs> and, and they need to be they need to be uh, accessible, openly accessible. You need to have uh, independent experts be able to overlook them. We all need to be able to use them, and we need to know why they do what they do, so we can challenge them. Um, all of these things need to you know need to be discussed in a far more open way. And, and a lot of that, you know, you, you mentioned kind of transparency and people being able to sort of a a analyze how they're coming to their decisions. But a, a problem with a lot of algorithms is they're proprietary and they're effectively a black box. And so you, you don't, you just, you, you put the you put the stuff in and it, and it churns out results and you can't really ask questions about how it's arrived at that stuff. So you saw these, you know, the thing in, in, in America uh, from a few years ago where an, an algorithm was determining sentencing. Um, and it was clearly doing it in a in a biased way, but we couldn't get into the algorithm to find out why exactly. It was just it was just happening. So I wonder how you how you enforce transparency on the people who are who are designing algorithms. Yeah. Well, Maggie was talking about the, the norms of science and people's people's engagement with science or their fear of science. But one of the norms of science is is open debate. If you're mm. going to if you're going to produce a result, it needs to be reproducible. If you're going to perform an experiment. Uh, you could be publicly performed and, and your peers and other people can challenge that. And for me at the moment with algorithms, we don't have the norms of science. Mm. We have the norms of alchemy. And alchemy yeah. didn't take us very far, despite the fact that alchemists use experimentation. Alchemists were the same brilliant people who were are, you know, the scientists of the time, like Isaac Newton and, and Robert Boyle. Uh, but alchemy got nowhere and it got nowhere because everything was done in secret because it was all commercially sensitive. It was all proprietorial. Who wants to turn lead into gold if everybody knows how to turn lead into gold? 
Yeah, but exactly. I challenge, Tim, I would challenge you, um, and maybe it's just being, you know, an American. One of the things I was impressed by in the UK is, you know, watching your parliament and like everyone actively fight with each other. It's like great <laughs> entertainment. We, we don't we don't do that here. Um, we we are in a very precarious position as Americans right now. And I'm not sure if we even realize how much trouble we're in. We have people who don't believe in science, period, mm. Mm. Um, and actively question it. Uh, we have algorithms and computer companies that have been led by literally one group of people um, who cannot, for the life of them, figure out how to get more diversity, but can figure out the physics of landing a rocket upright, right? Which seemed virtually impossible, but can't figure out how to hire more black people or women. Um, we have fundament fundamental challenges here that we can't even talk about how to create an algorithm until we have a discussion on who we are and mm. who we feel should be in that room. Yes. Who gets to make these decisions? Um, it's, it's a real challenge right now in the U.S., to be really honest, um, of, of who are we? Um, really basic existential questions. It has nothing to do with science. It's literally, who are we? What do we want to do? What world do we want to live in? Um, and we're really struggling with that. So the adoption of scientific norms and principles, we can't even have that discussion because we have people who frankly don't believe science is real. Well, I think, I think in a way, part of what you describe, Catherine, is playing out here too, but slightly mm. differently. I'd love to bring you in on this one, Venerable Tenzin, because you somehow, in in the space that you occupy, blend the two uh, areas that are supposed to be at, opposed and at odds always, which is spirituality and science. Especially after uh, you know, Enlightenment in Europe, there has been uh, this divergent path between science and religion. However, you know, looking at the landscape of science today, one thing is that science does need good storytellers. Uh, you know, people don't change mindsets based on data. No. People change mindsets and behaviors based on stories. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the struggles, I think, that a lot of scientific enterprises and institutions uh, need to sort of really invest in, which is how to tell stories and how to tell stories in a way that actually, uh, you know, counters people's ignorance uh, about what science is about, you know, and pushing that argument again to go back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, fairness and transparency and algorithms and so on, you know, most of the world is clueless about what machine learning is. Most of the world is clueless what about artificial intelligence is, how you know, choices are being made, how designs are being done. The irony of this is that you know, most individuals and enterprises believe that it should be the government that should be designing a regulatory mechanism. But okay. most governmental agencies are 10 years behind technology. You know, they don't even know. They don't understand by the time, it. <laughs> no, I mean, by the, by the time... Yeah, by the time they start thinking about policies, you know, technology has sort of moved from, from one stage to the other. So it does require, I mean, truly, you know, as, as much difficult as it may sound, the proposition, it does require a private and public partnership, meaning that we cannot simply presume that government or governmental agencies have sufficient know-how to start regulating uh, especially these emerging technologies. I think that's one of the biggest challenges that, that we are going to continue to face.
Do you think that technology is, is enhancing, at the moment, enhancing our sense of self? Or do you think it's actually muddying it to anyone, really? I think it's it's creating a whole new layer of confusion, you know. Mm. I mean, we humans were having enough problem with our sense of neurotic self and, and various <laughs> forms of, uh, uh, you know, neurosis. And all we have done in light of creating these kinds of new uh, platforms, I mean, you know, to the idea where you can actually start seeing data and correlations between selfies and, and incremental narcissism mm. uh, in, in, in society, that you need to start thinking about the fact that humans are not as good and as quick at adapting and regulating their behavior, uh, uh, you know, compared to the pace of technology that's going. Mm. Now, we may, we may talk about, you know, there's a generational issue, there's a generational difference and things of that nature that, you know, millennials and Gen Z are natives to technology while we are mostly immigrants to technology. You know, you can use all those models, but the bottom line is that emotionally speaking, we are paleolithic creatures. Our emotions actually have not evolved in the last 10 to 15,000 years. So when you're looking at aspects of mistrust, fake news, disinformation, polarization, interest groups, narrow-mindedness, all because of technology that was designed to open up the world, bring them closer, share free flow of information, you have to pause and you have to start asking the question, is it actually doing what it is supposed to do? Well, that is such a brilliant point. And Maggie, I'd love to get your thoughts on this and you as well, um, Tim. What would the world look like if all of our information was accessible, which is where many of these tech platforms would like us to be? That is what they're pushing for. That is what the lobby groups are campaigning for. What does that mean for us? So when you say sort of technology is accessible, one and of our the, data as uh, well. Wait, I see your data. Yes, yeah. that's interesting. Because uh, I was listening to uh, one of your um, earlier conversations, and sort of the idea was posed uh, just as a, a sort of theoretical: if everything was available, so my bank account details and everything was available, um, how would that work out? Yes, so people, someone could come and take money out of my account, but I know they're taking money out of my account, so I take it out of their account. <laughs> would it be a better? <laughs> would it be a more level well, playing field? Got more money than me, I don't mind. That's, that's great. Well, hey. you, would, would, would everything just level out until they say, okay, we've all got the same, let's just leave it at that. Um, and, and we do live in a world where there are the haves and the have-nots, and we're seeing that in all sorts of different scenarios. Um, but I think data, I don't know, data feels quite personal, and um, data is powerful. And so I think having too much data out there leaves people vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's also I think it's all or nothing. Having a few people with you know, sort of their data out there leaves them vulnerable. If we all had it, would it work? I'm uh, I'm nervous. <laughs> uh, I'll just jump in and say I think that the the conversation you were listening to, uh, Maggie, was the one with uh, Daniel, uh, Dr. Daniel Holman. He was he gave an example. If he's got all of this data, um, uh, open data on people, and he is then able to spot a pattern. That for example, um, he can say to uh, this this individual, "Do you know what? Looking at the the the, the, the patterns here, that the with machine learning or whatever, I can identify that you're at serious risk of this illness. But if we yes. act now, yeah, you can uh, we we can help you and probably prevent it. Mm. And in that example, should he, you know, should he do it? Um, yes. 
you know, and when, when he has that data, or do we, do we value our privacy so much that we'd rather he didn't? And I have no idea what the answer to that is. Yes, but well, he gave another example, and he was saying through the algorithms that he uses in his, um, uh, in, in his work, in his business, he can actually see the potential of someone leaving the company. Yes, yes, he did. Before yeah. the person realises yeah. it themselves. Yeah. And, and, and so, yes, um, it, is it playing God effectively? Um, mm. It's not intervening yeah. before, um, before, the, uh, before the individual is even aware. So in the health... Uh, one of the things I've been sitting on is a government commission at the moment, sort of mm-hmm. looking at racial disparities. Mm-hmm. And you can see that it's very much linked with sort of poverty and deprivation and things like that. And even but, uh, the impact of COVID, we've seen the disproportionate quite. impact on um, yes. uh, diverse and, 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 communities. And one of the things we've been trying to do is work out why this is. And there are sort of uh, sort of um, sort of various uh, sort of triggers. Uh, diabetes uh, happens more in sort of uh, certain uh, sort of uh, uh, people than others. Um, uh, sort of heart disease happens more in certain people than others, and it leaves them more vulnerable to COVID. So we have this information, but, but to me, it, it's um, what was said earlier. Uh, it's trying to spread the the information and educate people in an uh, an empathetic way. I think saying you know, we've got this data, you need to change, doesn't work. Uh, mm. One of the things I try and do with my science communication is trying to bring that emotion in, is trying to bring that empathy in, is trying to get people excited about the science. Mm. And I think if we can do the same with this data uh, in a gentle way, um, then we can warn people about the uh, the, uh, the penalties or, or just from their sort of genetics. I, I think it's powerful, but I, and I think it should be used, but it should be used very, very carefully. Tim, can you give us your take on all that we've been talking about? Uh, yes, I mean it's it's very easy to, to to talk in generalities, but I think we you know often you need to be quite specific about what exactly is being yes. done and and what impact it might have. So in terms, for example, of the differential impact of of algorithms on uh, on African Americans in the U.S., um, one of the things I discovered when I was working on a recent book that. was a mistake I made and a mistake almost all of my sources made. And I was only corrected when a a real specialist, Kathy O'Neill, took a look at the the manuscript. Mm. She said, oh, you've you've talked about this algorithm as predicting uh, re-offending. And does the algorithm do a good job of predicting re-offending or not? And all of my sources said the algorithm predicts re-offending. But actually, the algorithm doesn't predict re-offending. The algorithm predicts being re-arrested by the police. And wow. being re-arrested by the police is not the same thing as re-offending. Because there, no. there are people who re-offend who are not re-arrested, and yeah. there are people who are re-arrested who who uh, never actually committed re-offend. an offence. Yes. So, um, but that that's just one of these things where we can talk quite generally about our oh, algorithms and data and privacy and so on and differential impact. But very often you need to really drill down and and ask what exactly is is being said and. Mm. and and or what are we assuming is being said? And actually, when you look more carefully, you realize that something else is going on entirely. There's, there's actually a precursor to what Tim is suggesting, that the re-arresting data is also directly correlated with police patrolling. And so in the United States, you do recognize that police is patrolling more often in certain demographics yes. uh, of you know, Hispanic or African-American neighborhoods rather than affluent neighborhoods. And therefore, it leads to more interrogation. It leads to mm. more arrests in, in those kinds of things. So you see, it's, it's, it's domino's effect uh, from, from the very onset when you are sort of trying to capture those kinds of data. And it simply starts to perpetuate bias, which then leads to this you know, other issue that we were trying to touch on earlier, which is, you know, do we take... Uh, you know, who's sort of who takes moral agency, who takes responsibility for decision making. 
uh, in legal systems or the form of systems. Brilliant. And I think that brings up a really good point of the who again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if as an African-American, I would have an understanding about that question, um, mostly because I'm live in neighborhoods, I come from communities in which we do have more policing, therefore there's more rest. And perhaps if there was someone who came from my community that's adversely affected, particularly in the United States, I would be able to bring that up when the algorithm was being created. Um, And we've seen that a lot with AI here in the U.S. um, and globally that, you know, when you go to a restaurant or to a public restroom and you run your hand over the sensor, it has (laughs) a difficulty um, with skin that is darker. Mm. Um, If you were a part of the test team when this was being created and you had darker skin, ah, that would have been figured out quite early. Um, And so I think, again, it goes back to who gets to be a part of creating these algorithms at the very beginning. Um, And a lot of these biases could be headed off at the very beginning if we had diverse people creating them and participating in their creation. Uh, We've been discussing technology and digitalization, but it's easy to forget or choose to forget that access to the internet is not available uh, in many areas within our own countries and obviously throughout the world. Um, This is just one of the ways in which disparity in socioeconomic realities uh, is evident. So I'd love us to explore that, Rick. Yeah, I mean, another very obvious um, uh, disparity that was uh, highlighted in our Living in Space episode uh, was the increased vulnerability to contracting COVID for people living in overcrowded conditions. Um, And uh, we ended up talking about comorbidities uh, in, uh, I think, in in a couple of episodes in in Be Careful and Feed Me. Um, But I do think that we've seen, certainly from the people that we've spoken to, and also just a a sense, a wider sense, that there is evidence of a desire for um, community and, and, and kindness um, and, and, and lots of calls for action and, and changes across all sorts of sectors. And so I, I suppose the question to start with is if, if COVID has highlighted um, or, or at least brought greater attention to all of these disparities sort of socioeconomic disparities and so on, will we see now radical change moving towards greater equality or will actually inequality become even mm. more entrenched? Wow. Catherine, do you want to start? Just one word answers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just, just, yes, just yes or no. Just some of the right answers. Um, no. <laughs> I, I think, you know, as someone who is, is born into technology and always looks at technology as for, for its possible positive role, um, I, I do think we have to go back to this very non-technical question, which is um, who are we and what world do we want to see? And I know I sound like a broken record, but I I do think that that is the center of everything. So when we look at inequalities, um, you know, in terms of access to the internet, what type of internet, right? Because most people um, 
in communities that are a little bit more challenged have access to mobile. And mobile is more important than, you know, fiber optic landlines, right? And so the question isn't necessarily building the fiber optic landlines and more of that, but it's having better and more available cell phone towers and lower cost cell phone usage. So again, the who becomes such a central part of this conversation because each group of people, particularly disadvantaged peoples, um, and this is regardless of whether you're in the United States or any other place in the world, we view technology, its role, its impact in a very different way. Even the concept of community is viewed in a very different way. It's quite interesting talking about access to the internet um, because um, some of the projects I've been working on is looking at sort of global internet. So it's sort of a, 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 a constellation of satellites around the earth which could give internet to everyone. Now, to me, this seems very powerful. One of the things that was happening in COVID is um, I was teaching my daughter because uh, we were doing homeschooling and um, I had access to the internet. I was looking at various sort of websites and sort of trying to put packages together and it was hard work. But I was trying to imagine that without the internet. And yeah. so it's, uh, it's uh, so I think uh, having a, a sort of a widespread internet and I don't think it has to be fiber. It doesn't have to be cell towers either. Uh, if you have something like a, a global constellation, but the challenge is, is it free? And so I've been working with various organisations, some trying to make it free, sometimes uh, not making it free, sometimes mm. trying to get governments to buy into it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, um, the possibilities are, 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 are amazing. Sort of, you know, telemedicine, education, uh, people in refugee camps actually being able to work uh, remotely. So um, uh, I, I think the potential is there, but the commercialisation may limit it. That's in, my feeling at the moment. In, in my interview with Professor Kaku, he, he basically said the future all of the internet would be free in that the internet would just become the entry point for everybody in the way that you know devices would then morph into contact lenses and glasses and so on but actually the entry point would be free for everybody and and perhaps it's looking like the covid crisis may have accelerated that process because we've all become that much more empathetic in terms of worrying about those that are at the bottom of the ladder and those that don't have the same opportunities in our society. Um, uh, Tim, any thoughts on that? Well, I, I regard providing internet for everyone on the planet as a relatively easy problem compared to the some of the other challenges that Correct. we have. Yeah. I mean, actually, you know, internet is nice and uh, it's a tremendous leveler and a you know tremendous provider of opportunities. But fundamentally, people want uh, warmth and shelter. They Food. want the ability to to cook food without poisoning themselves or blinding themselves with indoor air pollution uh, and mm. vaccines, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I'm all in favor of trying to expand access to the internet. I think it's a wonderful thing, but we, um, there is always a tendency in my own work on technology to, um, for us to fall in love with whatever is new and shiny and to forget the, you know, the vital importance of, of pretty basic innovations. Um, the, 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 the thing that worries me, I have to say, is uh, yes, people have become aware uh, of inequality in the world, not just because of the pandemic. They've become aware of that really since the financial crisis. Hmm. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we do anything about it. Uh, so one of the books that uh, scared me most was written about 15 years ago. It was by Benjamin Friedman called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. Yeah. And what, what Friedman basically points out is that whenever things are going well, um, the economies are growing strongly, people compare themselves to 
you know, their parents or they compare themselves to their own experiences 10 years ago and they think, well, things are going great. The moment uh, growth stagnates, people start comparing themselves to their neighbours. Mm. They start comparing themselves to immigrants. Yeah. Uh, they, they, suspicion increases, uh, racial tensions increase, all sorts of problems increase. I think we've really seen that since the financial crisis of 2007, yeah. 2008, in all kinds of ways. So, um, you know, we should try to seize the opportunity. But, that, you know, history makes me concerned that the long-run impact of this shock may not be entirely positive. So this time has constantly been referred to as the new normal. Um, so I'd like to ask you, actually, June, um, would you like to return to the old normal uh, or do you like this new normal or do you want a, a new new normal, a, I, a different normal? I, I want a different normal. Uh, I definitely don't want the old one. I'll be honest, not too much of a fan of this current one. Um, okay. And I think that this current one is teaching us things we need to change about the old one. And hopefully mm -hmm. by the end of it, we come up with something much better for everyone. What, what, are your, what are your sort of three big changes? Well, I think the first one is for sure how we work. Um, I don't think we need to work in the same way anymore. Uh, we've proven we can change systems overnight. Uh, mm -hmm. And the fact that we've proven that means that we can apply that same thinking and that same sort of ingenuity to changing things around the issues that are unfair in our society. Um, so for me, that's a big one. Um, I think there's a level of caring uh, that has developed in this new normal, and I hope we keep that. Um, and then the other thing that I hope that we also um, keep is is an appreciation for the little things, you know, the things, you know, first world problems perhaps, but things that we completely took for granted before that we can't do as easily, when we can, I, I hope we realize that that is actually something special and that we don't take those things for granted again. Uh, what about any, you? You, no, what about you? What do you think before we bring everyone else in? <laughs> oh, me, I, I, do you know what? Your, your last point really resonated with me because I thought that this whole period has been really interesting in terms of making me uh, understand what, is actually important to, mm. to, to me and, and, and to, the, to, to the people that I, that I love. Mm. And I think that my priorities were probably a bit, um, I think they were just a bit off. Or a bit out of balance, just, like all yeah, of us. Yeah, bit off, bit, off, bit off kilter, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, it's, and it's definitely done a bit of reordering and made me think a lot about um, sort of, I mean, part of it is to do with work, but not exclusively to do with to do with work and just yeah. generally what are the what are the small things that you mentioned that make me um happy happier yeah and that's and that's sort of it and i'm like actually i'm quite interested in trying to like attain my maximum happiness yeah. and helping other people attain their maximum happiness and that feels like a really like solid ambition and it feels mm. a bit sort of wishy-washy but i think it's kind of a, a, achievable yeah. and it's ultimately what we all Want, isn't it? We all just want to be happy. And I think, unless you're a horrible person, you kind of want that for everyone else as well. <laughs> yeah. <don't you? laughs> well, I think Venerable Tenzin, you need to come in here. I mean, <laughs> happiness is what you do. <laughs> like, how do we get this thing right? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I, I really hope you agree with me. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do, Rick. I, I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm glad to hear at least that, you know, people are not... Uh, too keen on going back to the old normal. Mm. Uh, I think that's that was just this initial uh, 
uh, urge of the complacency that that we wanted the familiar old misery, uh, you know, rather than this new form of misery. I think in terms of you know uh, carrying on the trend of three things, uh, uh, rather than just just prompting the question of how we are working or how we work, uh, I would actually go with why do we work? Meaning, you know, our, our our definition, our understanding of why we work, has evolved quite a bit, and to the point that we have sort of romanticize the idea of working. We have romanticized the idea of staying busy and uh, justify things like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm so busy to tend to my family, to tend to my loved ones, uh, you know, uh, where even my vacation starts to sound very busy, uh, you know. So the question, the fundamental question, why do we work? Uh, the second thing probably would be that, uh, you know, sort of a daily, day-to-day experience and expression of gratitude. Uh, you know, one of the things that did happen during COVID was people recognizing the value of, you know, what we put in just one box as essential workers, you know, uh, work uh, of, of individuals whose efforts would go unnoticed, uh, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes. So this idea of taking note of everybody's contribution and actively uh, experiencing and expressing that sense of gratitude is, is 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 important, you know. Because one thing that COVID COVID has done, it has increased our aperture of uncertainty. You know, uncertainty has always been around. Certitude is a myth. You know, certitude is a kind of uh, you know delusional tendency that we constantly long long for. But uncertainty is a fact of life, and so I do hope that this experience would give us. Uh, the sense of resilience, the sense of agility to embrace uncertainty and embrace uncertainty, uncertainty in a manner that brings us, uh, you know, greater experience of joy, not only for ourselves, but for people around us as well. And I would actually follow on. I think what's interesting is one of the reasons why you've seen this wide global acceptance of Black Lives Matter, and particularly in the context of the U.S., is because literally Black Lives Matter a majority of the essential workers who kept the U.S. and I would argue probably the U.K. and other parts of the world moving mm. were actually uh-huh. Black people. Or um, people of a majority, color, for sure. Or people of color. But in yeah. America, it was specifically Black and Latino folks that were keeping America moving. We were the folks working at the grocery store. We were the folks working in the Amazon warehouses. We were the folks running the um, Instacart, the nurses, yeah. the, the, the people cleaning, as well. the doctors, yeah. but also those who had to be essential workers within hospitals who were putting themselves at great risk to even clean rooms and things yeah. like that, that were incredibly important. Mm. And I think here in America, we we had this sense of, oh my gosh, Black Lives Matter, not only because that's they're human and that makes sense, but it matters because I cannot live my life if they can't live theirs. Yeah. And I think there was a re- realization from a whole group of people who probably had never thought of their black neighbors in that way and how important they were and central they were to their lives that now had to really think about that. Um, and, and I think that was really big. And I also think this concept of space, um, and that's a real challenge here. I was reading some, once of a person who was talking about how their home was their refuge. Um, and, and it was their space that they went to after work. And now work has invaded that. 
Mm. Um, and so this concept of spaces and, you know, having three different types of spaces, home, work, and sort of a third space and how all of that is collapsing into one mm. and how that is challenging for some people. So there's those who love the ability of not having to go into office, but there's people for whom having that space that was outside of work was really crucial to them, to their own mental health. And so that is a big change that's happening. How do yeah. we ensure that people have that mental separation? And I think another really interesting thing, particularly as someone who's been a CEO of an organization, I wonder in corporate America and those who have companies, how much they thought about the home lives of their employees. Yeah. Because now if your employee has an unsafe environment in which they're living in or something is not right with their home life that is going to impact their work and that impacts mm. themselves they cannot escape it anymore so that's and that impacts as, your business and, what and it impacts your, your business company. yeah so you actually now have to care mm. about what's happening in the homes of your staff and your employees. And maybe this is the first time in history in which corporations really do have to think about that because yeah. um, it impacts everything. Yeah. Maggie, do you want to come in here? Yeah. So uh, I think um, it, it was also a reboot for me. Uh, I think I've been very work driven and it gave me time to contemplate. In fact, um, uh, when COVID started, I got lots of art supplies for myself and my daughter and um, and sort of lots of things that we could do at home. And we got chickens as well. And it, it sounds very <laughs> odd. <laughs> but I think the chickens are sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, changed my perspective a little because every day I go and collect the eggs and I sort of clean them out and things like that. And it's sort of, before life was just hectic all the time, travel, what's this, what's that? And there's still an element of that. But it's just a bit of time to contemplate and think about, yeah, okay, I'm cleaning out the chickens what's what have I got in, in line today and uh, so and, and it's something I can do with my daughter so every day we start with this and we can go on so I think it is just sort of time to contemplate change I think is something we have to live with but I think too much uncertainty is the challenge that people are facing right yeah because when you don't know if I'm going to uh so there's various schemes sort of keeping people in, in, in sort of um, uh, as of, uh, uh, in money at home and things like that and I think that that's uncertainty that is the real challenge here mm. And, and that's what I feel uh, is, uh, that's why I really feel for people. Because uh, with COVID, we don't know how long it's going to last. If we could say, okay, there's a deadline, oh, by the end of next year, everything will be back to normal or, uh, or the new normal, that would be fine. But I think it's that uncertainty, that spanning out in, in terms of the future that is really uh, sort of uh, causing many people stress. And also, we haven't felt the worst of it yet because people have been furloughed, because, yes. as you say, there have been schemes in place uh, to sort of buffer the fallout. Yes. But we know by the end of the year, those schemes will no longer be there and we will really then be able to see what the true impact of this virus the, the, is. The true bite of it. Yeah. And, and I think people are anticipating that, but it's uh, sort of... Uh, the uncertainty, but no control over it. Yeah, and I think that's the that's the big the big challenge at the moment. So something that we all share in life in general that perhaps we sort of pretend and avoid is total uncertainty. No one knows for sure what's going to happen one day after the next, and so on. But I think what COVID has done as is is that it's actually made us realize just how little control we do have over our lives and that actually the idea of control itself is an illusion. So I wonder 
does that then also wreak havoc with our faith in a sort of a belief in a better future if there is all this uncertainty? Uncertainty is profoundly unsettling, but uh, I mean, yeah, if you're if you're comfortable and everything's going well, but your it life's is, great. It is, ev- yeah. but it's everyday life. But somehow we pretend it isn't. It's yeah. it's quite yeah. bizarre. Absolutely, it is a reminder that you, you never know what's going to happen. But I, I just sort of feel that it's it's very easy if you if you're if you're happy with how things are going and you're at the top of the heap and you're making money and you like your job and you like your spouse and and you're living somewhere comfortable. It's very easy to say, well, uncertainty is very bad. But um, I think if life is not working out for you, uh, then actually the idea of a roll of the dice, something new. I mean, we've seen that, for example, in, in uh, the voting for populist leaders. That's partly coming from people going, I want a bit of chaos. I want things to be different. Mm. I want, I'm, I'll, I'm happy with uncertainty. It beats the certainty that things are going to be bad for me. So, yeah, I, I, I think uh, you know, uncertainty means different things to different people. It's interesting. Um, it's been such an honor to, to talk with you all being an American, because I think one of the challenges that we're facing here in America um, is our religion in America is really American exceptionalism. That is, yes. that, right? Hmm. That is a religion here. That is our religion, if yep. we're being really honest. Um, and how do you operate in a world where we're not exceptional, <laughs> right? Um, and we were never that way, but that is what you're told from birth here. Is, well, but you believed right. it and the rest of the world believed it. Everyone believed <laughs> and perception it. perception is reality, right? <laughs> we're finding, and we found very quickly that that was not true. So what do you do when everything your society has been built on, this central concept, is found to not be true? And I think that's where a lot of the uncertainty um, comes from here, is that we, are, we actually have to look towards mm. other people outside of Americans for leadership and advice. So I was having a conversation with a friend. My background is in epidemiology. And we were talking about wow. how do you operate as an epidemiologist in a society in a community in which science is evil, in which Mm. your politicians, your local leaders are directly against you as an epidemiologist. And I said, well, you can look to our colleagues who are in emerging nations, because this is what they've had to deal with all the time. Um, This conflict, this friction, and we can take leadership from them. Um, And I think it's really difficult as an American to say, "We, we don't know how to do this, and we need to look towards people for whom we've often had this paternalistic role um, and we were quote unquote the leaders now for leadership and how to like handle and deal with what we're facing. Wow, what a powerful, powerful point because as we know, a lot of the emerging uh, markets and and, and, uh, quote unquote um, developing nations have actually responded to the pandemic much more effectively because they're Very used much. to pandemics. Yes. So, Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Which, 100%. Uh, as yeah. an American, that has always been, we've had a very paternalistic attitude towards Sub-Saharan Africa, but Sub-Saharan yeah. Africa has done as a whole significantly better in managing yeah. this pandemic than we have. Yeah. And so what happens when that switches, particularly yeah. for a group of people for whom their religion has been exceptional. May I may I digress with a joke? 
Yes. Yes. Absolutely. We need yeah, it. Finally. Yeah. <laughs> you see, uh, uh, a very, a very devout believer once slipped off a cliff, and uh, as he was going down, there was a tree hanging out of the cliff, and so he, he sort of, you know, held on to the tree, and he's looking down like you know a hundred of feet of depth, and he yells out in this fervent devotion. He said, uh, uh, "God, if you're out there, you know I really need your help right now." And the voice came from the sky, and it said, "Child, have faith. Let go of the tree." And the guy looks down and says, "Is anybody else out there?" <laughs> you know? uh, you know? Thanks, God. Yes. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 cha- the challenge, the challenge is not that 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 you know we believe in God or we don't believe in God or whether we have faith or not. The challenge is that even our belief in God, we want it on our own terms. terms. Yeah. We want to dictate it. Mm-hmm. You see, and that goes contrary to everything that you know most religious systems would suggest in terms of uh, your view of the world. Now, here's the thing that that we must understand, which is day to day we encounter uncertainty on so many levels. You know, there are so many unknown variables in our life. And the challenge we have to recognize psychologically is that it's not the unknown that we fear. It's fear of leaving the known, fear of leaving the known misery, fear of leaving the known world of suffering, fear of leaving the known sort of, uh, you know, knowing uh, uh, familiarization, complacency of mind. You see, it's that what we fear. It's not, you know, unknown by definition is unknown. There is no need to project our sense of fear and our sense of incompleteness into the unknown. And this is, I think, the biggest challenge with, with human conditioning, that we truly, if, if we were to, you know, we were talking about this earlier, you know, has COVID made, made us more empathetic, more trusting, and so on. You know, we have found behaviorally in social landscapes that anytime a catastrophe hits, a natural calamity happens, for a short period of time, people do become empathetic. People do become more caring. The challenge is sustaining it, you know, and what a beautiful world it will be if we could sustain this newfound sense of empathy, this newfound sense of care and and trusting one another. Yeah, I I would agree that um, this it is a game change and it is shaking the system and the dice will roll and no one knows where and i i think the people who will thrive will see this as a chance for change but and a reset yeah a reset literally mm. um but well, i think we do need mechanisms in place where the vulnerable people have that opportunity to reset uh, and uh, and that we don't People don't just slip off the pe- uh, precipice, as you were talking about earlier. So it is trying to get enough of uh, a safety net for everyone in place. Uh, and I, I think, yes, we've gone through the sort of a, it's like a, a storm. It's almost if we're in the eye of a storm, but there's a, a, a potentially worse to come. How do we mitigate against that? And empathy, I think, will get us a long way. But yes, I, I think when um, push comes to the shove and uh, things are bad, that's when empathy sort of dies and people sort of look to themselves. Yeah. So that's my fear for the future. Sorry, I'm usually quite optimistic. <laughs> well, well, but, but, but it, but it also, you know, uh, sorry, to interrupt, it, it gives us a deeper sense of, you know, what our biases and drivers are. You know, uh, you know, in, in some ways, COVID couldn't have been a better, you know, we couldn't have designed a better social experiment no, for the long run, for the kind of demographic than this, you know, and my friends in Silicon Valley who have been, you know, sort of trying to promote the idea of universal basic income and so on in the advent of AI, taking jobs and stuff. I mean, this is a clear example, you know, and again, we couldn't have designed a better 
uh, uh, social experiment that it's not just about the money. It's our it's all about our sense of identity with what yeah. with our work. Yeah. It's an issue of greed. You know that that you know uh, do we know the right balance between need and greed? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. when COVID hit, the ridiculousness of people. Uh, you know, uh, just stockpiling toilet paper in the United States. You see, mm-hmm. toilet paper were the first things to go out of Guilty store. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, 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 but ironically, the second thing, and, and I'm in, you know, uh, sort of uh, in the Midwest uh, at the moment, the second thing that the stores were running out were guns and ammunitions. Oh, no, no, know? no. Yeah. You know, and, and, then, and, and then the, then the joke, the, you know, then the joke was, you know, why are guns, you know, going out of the store so fast to protect the toilet papers? You see, it's 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 it's, it's, it's this kind of challenge. So you know, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of, you know, it couldn't have been better designed, you know. And so we need to thank nature for that in order to sort of get deep insights into our own yeah. behavior. Yeah. That yes, we are designing technologies for betterment of human society. But there are some deep-seated biases and behaviors that we still need to address. Yeah, there's a great quote that I meditate on each morning, and it's by a Sikh philosopher, Valerie Kerr, who many people may know. And it says, "What if we're not in the darkness of the tomb, but we're in the darkness of the womb?" Mm. And every moment, and every morning, I think about that. Like, what if we're in a place now where we're have the ability to rebirth something or birth something new. Ooh. And what is it that we're going to do differently this time? What what can come out of this that can be positive, that can be great, that can move us forward? Um, and, and to think about that. And I think this is an exciting Ooh. time because yeah. we have an opportunity. Um, it's the first time ever that someone's actually cared um, what someone like me thinks. If, if 2020 was to begin again, and we knew what was coming. What would you change about the way that the world responded? I think my answer would be slightly monkish. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why we want, that's why we asked you here. Yeah, we wanted a bit of monkish stuff. Yeah. Uh, I think I would I would have uh, preferred to prepare the world better to experience the value of solitude. Um, you know, that, you know, we are dealing with loneliness as an epidemic, uh, despite of, you know, the rise in social media and connectivity platforms. Uh, and it's an irony that, you know, on one hand, we connect, uh, we complain about an overpopulated world with seven plus billion humans. On the other hand, we are lonely. So I would have liked that we could have embraced solitude and understood uh, how solitude could help us become more self-aware, that it's a form of, uh, it's a precursor to self-care. It's a precursor to uh, not only increase our ability to become aware, but also understand dynamics of relational awareness of how we, uh, you know, relate better to other humans, to uh, other sentient beings, to our ecosystem and so on. And so solitude really as as a place of leverage and not panicking in this mode um, and confusing it with alienation and loneliness. What are we all hopeful about? One oh, answer. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, one thing. I I think I'm I'm hopeful that I mean it's kind of everything that we've talked about that we in our communities do decide to try and look after each other a little bit more because we've got a bit more understanding of 
what people are going through and what people have been and what people do for us yeah. uh, to to help our uh, help our lives. And I hope that we don't just forget all of this. Mm. That, that's what I really hope that we don't that we don't forget and then um, end up just in a, in a in a world that's very similar to the one that we had before. You know, I'm going to say something that's grammatically incorrect, but Mm. um, my 22-year-old niece, God bless her heart, asked me um, for advice. And I said to her, nobody knows nothing right now, which means that we can create whatever we want to create. Like all the rules are out. And what I'm excited about and I'm hopeful for is because all the rules have kind of been dismantled, that we now have this opportunity to create something different. Mm. I mean, just going on with Rick said, I, I, I think there's a world that we can create now that's much more connected mm. because we now know how important it is to have each other in our lives. And the lives of our neighbors matter to us. It impacts us deeply. And so I think this is really an amazing time. I'm hopeful that that continues. I've spent more time with my neighbors the past six months than I've ever spent the whole entire time that I've lived in my house. And so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that that continues, the sense of community, the sense of that we're in it together, that, that we can win, we can move forward, we can grow, if we do it together. Um, and I think that's exciting. And I'm excited for the future because of that. In January 1975, the uh, American jazz pianist Keith Jarrett was booked to play uh, at the largest venue he'd ever played at, the Cologne Opera House. And because of a mix-up, the wrong piano had been delivered to the stage. It was it was kind of broken down. The pedals didn't work. Keys were sticking, and it was too small. Wouldn't it wasn't loud enough to fill the opera house. And so, of course, he refused to play, um, but was then effectively guilt tripped into it. Like he couldn't he couldn't back out, and so he committed to walk out on stage in front of fourteen hundred people, the largest audience had ever faced and to start improvising whatever music came into his head all alone on a piano he knew was unplayable. Uh, It was the greatest concert he ever played. It was recorded and it was the best-selling album, uh, not just by Keith Jarrett, but by any pianist in history, the Kong concert. Two of my children were born while my wife was in labour listening to this music. It's very special. And it was the way that he dealt with this challenge that he didn't want to face, he would have walked away from if he felt he could, the way he dealt with this produced something absolutely magical in a way that he didn't predict and he couldn't have predicted. So I guess what I'm saying is what I hope is that this pandemic is going to be the unplayable piano. I don't know what's coming, but I hope we're going to figure out how to make something magical out of it. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Oh, you're on a monkish territory now, aren't you? Uh, I think we've been using the analogy of sort of shaking up the system at sort of a a, a reset, sort of re-throwing the dice. And I I really love the idea that we do learn from each other. Um, In the world, we have sort of the haves and the have-nots, but different countries are tackling this in many different ways let's learn from them yeah i think i think the problem is it was sort of oh no what do they know about this oh yes we are the uh, sort of uh, we are the developed world we know we don't 
let's do this together, let's work together. And that's one of my fears from earlier, that um, sometimes it gets very insular about what's happening in our country. Mm. Let's sort of spread the network, sort of between communities, between our sort of neighbours, but globally. So we tackle, I would say this, I'm a space scientist, I look yeah. things on a big picture, but yeah. let's do that. Let's learn from each other's mistakes where, where, where we make them and the successes. Uh, and let's sort of get the feelers out there. Brilliant. I'll quickly, and then obviously we'll let the monk have the last word. Um, I think the thing that I'm hopeful about is uh, truth, honesty, authenticity, in the sense that we, can, we can't deny and we can no longer avoid the things that we've been avoiding because it's just there. Whether it's unhappy relationships, whether it's a job you didn't like anyway, you know, all of these things. And I think that actually part of that resetting is about a sort of much more honest way of living and not just fitting into the mold that society says we need to fit into. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that I'm hopeful for, even if it's uncomfortable and it's difficult. There's a there's a truth that we have to face about all our own lives. Venerable Tenzen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I would like, I'm more hopeful for more hope in the world itself. I, I don't, you know, hope is a game changer. It's not just a fluffy uh, term, uh, you know, and, mm. uh, and we can use more hope uh, in a time of despair. Mm. Uh, to, to truly bring the world together. And in order to bring the world together, one radical thing that I, that I do hope for is that we'll begin to trust each other more. You know, we are social creatures. We are civic society. We can only grow and advance at the speed of trust, uh, whether it's, you know, between you and I or whether it's between communities, between nations. But we need to let go of the old sense of tribalism and begin to sort of really capitalize on this beautiful currency that we have, trust. Wow, and, and what a beautiful point to finish on, more trust. That is definitely something uh, that we need more of in the world. Uh, thank you to all of our phenomenal speakers. Uh, what an extraordinary panel uh, you have been. Thank you for sharing your insights with us. Um, of course, uh, we wouldn't be able to do this without these great minds that give up their time uh, to share all of their beliefs and their ideas uh, and their genius with us. So again, thank you. Uh, time for us to wrap up this final episode of Project Reset. We have all been living through uh, this complete phenomenon, this new thing for the first time, at the same time, this collective experience that the world is going through. And we all have our own experiences and our own points of view, and we want to hear yours. Yeah, exactly. We want to hear from, from you at home, uh, the viewers, about your ideas as well on, on how we can use this moment to reset and shape uh, hopefully a better future. Uh, so speak up, uh, speak up, comment on our on our socials, subscribe to our channels for every episode of Mission Winnow's Project Reset. Uh, and one last thing before we say goodbye is uh, I've found a coping mechanism for everything is I've become uh, a super determinist. Um, so I, I, I just basically I'm absolutely fatalistic but I think everything, if you knew all the initial conditions at the Big Bang, you'd be able to predict everything that's ever going to happen. <laughs> And if you think of it like that, ah, well, whatever. <laughs> I knew you'd like that, Maggie. Bye, everyone. <laughs>